Welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you, get a window, and tell other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Sean. On today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to author Daniel Nangieri about his book, The Many Assassinations of Samir, the Seller of Dreams. It's a fantastic conversation. We got into so many incredible threads about the book, about the history of the Silk Road. Before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about the book. This is the tale of an exciting journey along the Silk Road with a young monk and his newfound guardian, Samir, a larger-than-life character and the so-called seller of dreams. This man is a scammer, his biggest skill being the ability to talk his way into getting what he wants. While that talking did save Monkey's life, it has left a lot of people furious with Samir, furious enough to hire assassins. Monkey decides to try and save Samir from the attempts on his life as a way to pay off his debt. If he can save Samir six times, he'll be a free man, but will they all survive that long? and a little bit about the author, Daniel. Daniel Nieri was born in Iran and spent a couple of years as a refugee before immigrating to Oklahoma at age eight with his family. His autobiographical novel, Everything Sad is Untrue, A True Story, was the winner of the Michael L. Prince Award, the Christopher Medal, and the Middle Eastern Book Award. He's a former publisher, editor, and pastry chef. He lives with his wife and son in an Airstream in one of America's great national parks. My conversation with Daniel spanned, spun, spanned, spanned, covered a wide range of topics, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. But before we get there, I did want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours, but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at theempiretoys.com. And by Self Unbound. Your quality of life, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, is a direct reflection of the level of abundant energy, ease, and connection your nervous system has to experience your life. At Self Unbound, your nervous system takes center stage as we help unbind your limited healing potential through network spinal care. Access the first steps to your Unbound journey by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or at www.selfunbound.com. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Daniel Nayeri is right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I'm very excited to have him here on the show, Mr. Daniel Nieri, author extraordinaire. Daniel, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you on because I think um, a lot of the material that you've written is so interesting to me, specifically the many assassinations of Samir, the seller of dreams. Say that five times fast. I, I dare anybody <laughs> to say that, right? Um, but it's interesting because what i found as I was reading the book and I was uh, prepping uh, for our conversation today, I was thinking about the many, many, many stories that I consumed as a, as a young kid. And I've got, I've got two, two kiddos. I've got an eight-year-old and an almost, as he likes to say, almost not quite six-year-old. He's not five <laughs> and a half anymore, right? He's almost not quite six. Um, um, and the stories that I consumed when I was their age and stories of, of far off lands and stories of friendship and stories of adventures and stories of treasure, lots of stories of treasure. Um, yeah. For some reason, I just love to hear about more and more treasure. So we'll dig into the book because I think um, 
I'm excited to get your perspective and your take on it. But before we do all of that, um, for folks who are new to the Detox Podcast, what we like to do here at the start of the show is we like to invite people to quote unquote detox from the world around them, get a window into how other people live their lives. And I like to ask my guest right at the start of the episode. And so Daniel, I'll ask you, what are you currently detoxing from? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, so, you know, speaking of that book, I, I do, uh, you know, my, my books, I try, I try to make them fun. I, like, as you said, I, I, I try to make them feel like how I felt when I was watching cartoons in the eighties, yeah. but, um, but they come with an intense amount of research. Um, and in this case, that book was set in the 11th century Silk Road. I joked that I called my agent and was like, I've got a comedy set in modern, in Uzbekistan in the 11th century Silk Road. It's going to be huge. And, um, <laughs> So, and I, I really care about that kind of rigor. Um, I, you know, I don't mind if I make a choice that is a historical, I'm not sort of just married to, to that, um, necessarily, but I want to make sure I made that choice. And yeah. so, so I've spent the last decade deep in Silk Road, uh, reading and history and things like that. Um, anywhere from the fourth to the 11th century, uh, kind of going into, Everything from, you know, the topography of that, the region, which is a gigantic region, by the way, it's all of Asia, basically, um, all the way to uh, all the way to just, you know, the sort of cultures, you know, uh, history and religions of the time. So um, so I'm detoxing from that. But unfortunately, toxing on my next project, <laughs> I'm deep into the age of sail and trying uh, trying to learn, man like sailor terminology and just the parts of a ship if like you really oh saline to... like yeah, i'm, I'm saline. just folks can't see this but i did a big gesturing as if i have like That's a sail and i'm like thrusting it forward there's a nice visual for folks for a second i was like "Ooh, is he talking about sailing with a boat or perhaps yeah. like arthur miller type of sailing like salesman right. but that, that's totally different right I'm, no this this i already yes. you know the silk road book was all about merchants this one this one will sort of be uh, a very different project but it, you know who knows how long it'll take me to just to do the base yeah the foundational research it, i i really uh yeah i do sort of a deep dive so i guess detoxing from uh samarkand of the 11th century diving into the Atlantic uh, waters of the 17th century. Incredible. Like truly, <laughs> truly incredible. You know, we, we, I say we, the collective we, but it, it's just me here at the Detox, peeling behind the curtain a little bit. It is a one-man show, one-man shop here at the Detox Podcast. But um, I speak to a fair number of authors from time to time, and I'm always amazed and impressed at the, at the, the various deep dives the different authors do into the particular subject matter in order to put forth a compelling book such as um is there a shorter way to say this title because i was about to just read it all <laughs> you know what let's just yeah. do the mini assassinations of is it samir is that the best samir yeah samir, samir, samir the seller of dreams. of dreams that's right yeah sometimes i'll shorten it to the seller of dreams uh okay. you know the book itself is is a testimony from this young boy right he's the He's a he's a monk who at the beginning of the story is about to get stoned to death by right. the monastery um, because he's committed an accidental heresy. Right. And um, and just as he's about to, uh, you know, he's about to be executed. This this merchant comes sashaying in. And again, this was where I was joking to my agent going, uh, it's you know, it's the music man set on the <laughs> Silk Road. Right. Yes. It's just this 
this portly huckster who is um, is absolutely a con artist, is absolutely smiling while he's trying to sell you a used right. you know, car. Um, but he comes sashaying into the scene and he hustles the mer- the monks um, yeah. and and buys this boy ostensibly for, you know, uh, for a song. And and that is how this boy who he calls monkey because he was a monk, um, how monkey becomes uh, sort of comes into the servitude of Samir, the seller of dreams, who, as I said, sort of sees himself as this teller of tales, this, you know, man who. um who wanders the Silk Road, um, uh, you know, selling dreams more than merchandise. Yeah. And and to Monkey, who is our narrator, he is an unserious man. He's a liar. He's nothing like the monks. He has no religion. He has he he's like water. He just he's just wishy washy. And um and so as he's telling you this story, he's effectively saying what happened was that we found out that each of these villages that he swindled have gotten furious and hired a different assassin. To come and kill him yeah so there's a you know a viking berserker and a mongolian archer and a chinese ablutionist and a and a dervish and it just keeps going and they're all trying to kill this one uh goofy merchant and uh and it's this young boy uh, it sort of falls to him it's his obligation to save his master over and over again um but at the opening he also tells you like you know despite the fact that i succeeded in saving my master from the many assassins, it was me. It was I who finally did him in. I'm I was the one who um, finally killed Samir, the seller of dreams. And so you're fi- you're getting what is effectively an 11th century interrogation sequence of this little boy um, telling you how and why he did it, which is kind of the main story. So the title is long. I'm a sucker for long titles. I love I love a long. Yeah. T- you're talking to a guy that like would would go on and on. I love it. I was just trying yeah. to say it rapidly so it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have to edit that part. Later. Go with the seller of dreams, uh, and yeah, let's not get tongue tied. No, but I. But that's a good. That's a good segue into wanting to ask. I have a couple questions about sort of the the approach to this story. So let me just start with maybe the maybe the obvious question, which is what what made you dig down deep dig down, dive down deep yeah. into uh, the 11th a story set in the sil- in the 11th century on the Silk Road. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so the 11th century part happens because you, you're negotiating, right? Sure. So that happens much later. De- deciding, okay. so the Silk Road is an era of time that's going from 4th to 11th century. Right. Why? I just love it. I, it's the magic of, you know, caravans on the silk, on the sand dunes. Um, you know, they're going from city to city, cities like Samarkand and Turfan, where, you know, I have a little bit of knowledge about them, but it's really the knowledge of a little kid who is just enraptured by, I mean, you, you know, everyone has a city that when you say, um, it just kind of fills you with goosebumps, right? right like for right. me, for me, it's always been Samarkand. Um, it's, it's a garden capital. Isfahan is where I was, where I was raised. And oh, cool. um, they're both very, they have similar, you know, um, uh, I guess, positions, I, I would say, socioeconomically in the Silk Road. And so, um, so in some ways you're like, okay, I want to set my story in that time period. The negotiation is like, okay, but I also want to have a Mongolian gunner who uses gunpowder. Yeah. Gunpowder doesn't start coming into effect until actually the early 12th century, but you can sneak it in in the late 11th, sure. right? And then I'm like, okay, but then, so the, the exact time is the negotiation with the technology that you want to use or sure. the cultural space. The place is 
Okay. So the Silk Road, I mean, it's, it's this network of trade routes, right? And they begin, it goes, it begins from like the edge of China in the far Eastern um, shore, which is basically what modern day Xi'an, back then they're calling it Chang'an. You go all the way across China to Western China and you get to Turfan. Then you go uh, across the Tarim Basin, which is one of the lowest lying part, you know, parts of the world. Um, you go across the Taklamakan Desert, which I'll come back to. It's one of the most magical places on earth to me. Uh, then you get into the Pamir Mountains. Past the Pamir Mountains, you're going to get to Samarkand, which is in modern day Uzbekistan. Go across to Iran uh, and you get to Baghdad in modern day Iraq. Um, so you're going through Isfahan there. And that's kind of the, the those are the four capital you know, cities of the, of the Silk Road. Um, but we have, I mean, we have, you know, stories. I mean, obviously like Marco Polo from sure. Venice comes in, but we have Irish traders that come in, Vikings that come in, the Tibetans, the Indians, uh, you know, of the subcontinent come in. So, I mean, everybody, this is an era where there's more religions, more languages, more people groups, more ethnicities than, you know, um, than, you know, sort of crossing paths and mixing. Then, a modern metropolitan city, right? So right. it's it's we don't think of them as cosmopolitan as they were, but they truly were. Um, uh, you know, multilingualism is a basic fact of um, you know, someone's life, and so that kind of stuff excited me. Um, and I've always loved it, but there was this one moment um that really got me going, and it was a uh exhibit out of UPenn. Um, on the Silk Road, and the the what instantiated the the exhibit was that was the Taklamakan. The Taklamakan is the largest sand dune desert in the world. In Farsi, it means the place of no return. It's got the largest sh uh, shifting sand dunes um, anywhere, which means there's 1,600 feet oh. of shifting sand above your head. It's gigantic. Wow, that's not um, terrifying at all. No, and it's shifted. And at that time, it would it would literally just shift over a village and eat it. They called it the eater of cities. Whoa. Um, as a result, it's also a haunted desert, right? Because it right. killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, the, one of the reasons they thought it was haunted, I'll tell you, is um, is that there's an acoustic phenomenon that happens when the wind clips over the sand dune and the sand ripples down uh, the dune um, it causes like a moaning almost like oh. if you were blowing across a jug like yeah, a yeah 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 um and so when you're down in the gullies of the sort of the dunes you're hearing the moaning of what sound like ghost caravans um terrifying place yeah. to people <laughs> right? yeah just so, like oh my god yeah yeah, ghost love, desert. That's and, so cool, though. Like, yeah, yeah. And in my head, I'm like, okay, I've got a ghost desert. It's one of the coolest places on earth. And um, and what had happened actually quite recently was it had shifted, and they had found an archaeological site where one of these villages that it had eaten, um, underneath which they not only found all kinds of um, artifacts and you know uh, interesting details about their lives, but there was a young woman that had been found who'd been mummified by just the by the, the, sand. the dry sand, right? Wow. And she had been preserved better than any mummy in Egypt, better than any mummy we've seen in South America's or anything. Yeah. Um, and it, so we're talking about a body from, I think she's, I forget exactly, but it's in the early part, right? Let's say sixth century. And you can see eyelashes on her face. You can see skin tissue. You oh, can see wow. it's just a little macabre. But they, sure. you know, a lot of, you know, for some of the marketing purposes, like she was called the beauty of uh, Turfan or the beauty of Kashgar, I think is what they call her. 
Um, because because when you look at her, you see a human being. And right. when I look at a mummy's face, I'm not looking. I'm uh, you know I don't see a human being. I see a cadaver. I see a skeleton. Right. With her, it was quite different. And and next to her at this exhibit was her comb and and her little compact, like her little yeah. mirror that she had. And she had these shoes that looked like they just looked like Prada shoes. They were beautifully handmade. Um, and everything about her just looked. Um, I wouldn't say modern, but I would say incredibly familiar. Like I yeah. could have known this girl in a way that I never think of when I think of, I look at a sarcophagus. Um, she, you know, I wanted to know about her life. I mean, there was even a dumpling that had been petrified in the sand and it looked exactly like a soup dumpling. You would get it like <laughs> Joe's Shanghai. Right. And I was like, that is wild. We've been folding dumplings the same way for, you know, what is that? Uh, 1500 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, we just, that's how we, you know, and so um, that stuff blew me away. And I, I went into the bookstore and bought up every book I could get my hands on and, um, and, and wanted to, wanted to tell the story of life along that particular route and think about what those people's lives were like and try to make it incredibly accessible. Like in yeah. a lot of ways, the book reads like a comedy, like a buddy comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want them to speak, uh, I mean, you, know, you have to do a little bit of this. They can't say stuff like, uh, yo, right. <laughs> but they can't, you can't be goofy about it, but I, I did want them to be, um, to, you know, to, to feel, you know, to give, to give them the dignity we give ourselves. Often we yeah. look back in history and we're like, they were stupid. They didn't know. And, you know, we just assume a certain level of simplicity in yeah. their lives. And so that that exhibit I have to give credit to about ten years ago. That is, thank you for sharing that. It is incredible. I, I, there's so many I, like there's so many like my brain is just like branched <laughs> off into like so many different thoughts. So let me try and get one that will c continue the story. But I would I, I do want to just say I there's two things that you said that I want to just kind of double down on and then go to kind of maybe the yeah. next point. But it, you talked about so the seen her mummified and seen so much detail that had been preserved natural preservation um, allowed allowed you to connect in a way that you hadn't been able to because of how how different and how um, uh, unfamiliar um, a lot of the the mummies in these prior exhibits look um, I have found recently when I watch um, footage that has been colorized or um, mm -hmm. old black and white photos have been colorized, it looks so recent and familiar when in reality it's over a hundred years old or, 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 yeah. you know, I mean, it's so far away that when it's in sepia toned or black and white, it looks far away. And then when it's color, when there's been a little bit of color, it looks so like, I love the word you said familiar, that it does remind me that we are, it, it's not, there's a thought that I want to say, and I'm trying to capture it in the exact right way, but it's, it's, we're a continuation of a story mm -hmm. that has been going and we are contributing to it and we are not so separate from it as we, we are led to believe at times. It, it, right. you, you know what I'm saying? And I think, um, I also want to like, to that point, I think there is a, um, a, a, motivating factor from from some other areas to think of folks in the past in the simplistic way like you said whereas the more we learn and discover the more brilliant we find all of these people and societies to be which laid the foundation for where we are now i think yes i think the bias comes in 
when yeah. we think that we are the greatest like thinkers in the history uh-huh. of the world because we're communicating not in person but over you know um, I almost said a phone line but you you get yeah. the point right Satellite. Yeah, yeah yeah I think about this all the time in one way particular way is if you ever go to a bazaar in like Turkey or any any Middle Eastern country right and if you ever go and these are the ones I'm familiar with I'm sure it's the same with marketplaces anywhere else um, one of the interesting things that we talk about when we talk about um, fancy stories, right? Like imagine, imagine this. This is a really common story beat, right? Is um, modern person goes back in time and shows them an iPhone and they think he's a god, right? And you're like, or you know, you just immediately, if you go back those rooms, you'll immediately just be able to hustle them with your knowledge of like what what I'm telling you. I think the most realistic version of that is if you went back to a bazaar in the 11th century, you would get hustled out of everything you own in 12 minutes. Like these people would see you coming. Like, and I think that's, we genuinely think they would be astounded by us in some odd way. And I'm telling you, they would be unimpressed. Um, And not, not because, and frankly, because, you know, I think, I think we have plenty to, to, you know, um, plenty of impressive things. I'm not saying that they're, they're better. I'm saying that we have gotten so used to imagining ourselves as superior that we would be, we would be absolutely surprised by how complicated their lives were, how sophisticated and how, how um how their instincts in a lot of ways could um could lead them to better uh, outcomes than than ours yeah. uh, you know we we're so, and so yeah i couldn't agree with you more i think the colorization i love when i see those because it it immediately puts you there right yeah. um there's that that's good well i mean so i if you'll indulge me for a moment so i am a sure. huge soccer fan and this will tie into my things to check out uh, a segment at the end, but I was reading um, recently Inverting the Pyramid, the History of Football Tactics by Jonathan Wilson, a 500-page tome, um, but absolutely <laughs> brilliant if you're a, a soccer nerd like me. That it's it's history and it's data and it's to, like it's all it's Matt. It's great. But he's money ball for soccer. Is that what we're talking about? Well, kind of. I do have that book. It's called Soccernomics. <laughs> but no. So oh, I'm, nice. I'm holding it up. Uh, inverting yeah, the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, what I love about it, there's a section in there where it's talking about how the the Brits brought the games of soccer to South America, and then they left, right? And then things naturally evolved over time. And there was um, somebody who came to observe a team in Argentina play, and he was frustrated because they were quote doing it wrong. And because they were playing with tricks and with style and they were dribbling and, and the author, Jonathan Wilson talks about, he extrapolates it out and was like, Britain had fields and fields to run. So they played one way, run and score. And Argentina, they were learning on these little courts. So their space was minor and small. So they had to learn these tricks to keep the ball and keep possession, which is different. And so I think we, and this comes into the bias where you're talking about, like, if you go back in time, we we've imagined ourselves sort of as this superior way. I think when we are used to one way of thinking and processing and approaching, um, then we will inherently think we are uh, the most superior, the top uh, person, top thinker, top human. Right. Um, But when we allow ourselves to read and learn about other groups of people, other time periods, other situations, then we understand how different that diversity of thought is because people have different situations, different locations, different resources. So they develop 
um, mm-hmm. styles and skills differently um, than we would. You were talking about the Silk Road and bringing it back around to the Silk Road. Um, mm-hmm. That is something that I think you have it at the beginning of the book about. I just I don't want to misquote it because it was it was um, fascinating to me where you talked about three times longer than the Wild West, cross deserts as barren as Antarctica and stranded more men to die than the seven seas. And just like, I mean, growing up, I'm here in Texas, right? So I heard all about the Wild West and, of course, the Oregon Trail. And I thought like, whoa, that's intense. Then I learned about the Silk Road and went, that's got nothing on it. So so talk to me about some of the comparison conversations that you've had with people from who maybe are used to the Wild West or the Oregon Trail. Uh, well, I mean, 1883 is a show that just came out not too long ago where they're talking or taking people on the the Oregon Trail. Contrast that with maybe some of the stories that you learned about on the Silk Road. Sure. I mean, yeah. So it's it's less, um, you know, it, it would be it would be, you know, the, the best comparative to something like the Wild West would be when it's developed a little bit more. And so you have people that have way stations that have stops mm, right because yeah. that's and and that's where all the action is in some ways um because you know as as you can imagine so it's funny there's an era of um sort of like uh uh there was a, there was an era where the, in the, the the mongols had had sort of taken over so much of the eurasian steppe that and they were they had such total control over over that period that they said um that a a, a young woman that this was like a like a, almost like a idiom they would have yeah. of the space was a young woman could walk from one end to the other of the silk road with a basket on her head and never be menaced you know yeah. by by bandits or anything like that which which is kind of like that would be like a shocking thing right right and because anywhere else when you're going when you're going with goods um from location to location as you might from like i don't know uh denver to kansas city or summer camp to turfan right um you're just you're just a massive target so banditry piracy um you know sort of lawlessness these are things that are um just a, an element that you have to contend with one of my favorite um you know, memes or uh, I mean, I use the word meme. I guess. suppose really I should be using the word theme. One of the word interesting themes of the Wild West is this moment that happens in a lot of the films or books when a cowboy or so who who may be sort of like quite literally acting as a cowboy, like driving a right. driving a, a a cattle or or just you know someone someone making their way from one location to another will be sitting in the dark over a fire. <laughs> Um, maybe maybe cooking up a can of beans or whatever it might be, right? They've got their night's meal. They're alone. There's nothing out there. It's the Montana sky. And and they hear a rustling out, out of the woods, right? And and someone steps out of the woods. That moment, that moment is so important, right? In in the in the mindset of a um anyone in that era in the Oregon Trail, too. Because at that moment, there's something that you're both very keenly aware of, which is there's no such thing as any r- rule of law, right? The whatever you two are going to negotiate between one another to make sure you both live that night through, that's the law. Right? Yeah. No one's coming. Yeah. No one's coming. So if that person comes up and says, "Can I? Can I share your fire?" Okay. All right. Well, can I share your bean? okay like what if you want to say no what if no i don't want you to share my beans and you're like okay but am i prepared to defend the beans why would i want to do you want what are they holding i don't know your side so you everything is happening at once the dynamic is immediate like 
How big a boy is he? Yep. Uh, is he does he is he packing any sort of firearm? Does he have an animal with him of any sort, or does he have friends who are hiding in the shadows? Um, do I have anyone I can call? Can I whistle for? There's so many questions that immediately have to get answered. Some of them are: if I run, where would I go? Yep. What do I have that's slowing me down? It's just a, there's it's an immediate survival um, moment and and it's a moment where you're quite literally negotiating the law. It's why in the Wild West you have this theme of like Wyatt Earp brings the law right yeah. um, because now if you do something to this man he's hopefully he's gonna get make it to Kansas City call the sheriff the sheriff's gonna get a posse you go out you got it okay in in the interesting part of the Silk Road is that you almost see what happens if the Wild West stays the Wild West for like nine more you know six more centuries like how would yeah. they solve these problems because you know you're not going to get a railroad right right across that kind of landmass. you're not going to have like cities form as fast as they do in the united states some of that is technologically because we're talking about the fourth century to the 11th whereas in the west in wild west we're talking about much later um so it just simply doesn't develop that fast so now what are your what are your methodologies okay well you're never going alone with a can of beans in the in the woods that's stupid <laughs> That's, can't do it. Yeah. So now you're going to need a lot more people. So the in the while in the or in the um, Silk Road, um, caravans are they're not five people. They're not fifty people. They're moving cities. So there are hundreds of tarpan horses, hundreds of camels, hundreds of yaks, all being led by the caravaneers. And then in addition to the caravaneers, there's individualized merchants who are coming and they they have pack animals. So someone like a Samir, who's a merchant of, you know, has some means, they would have dozens of camels holding all their goods. Because again, you're, these, this is like your, your rig, you know, 18 wheeler too, right? It's like all the, um, you know, the goods that you're going to be selling. And there was a job of some a person whose job was, and it's actually a, there, was, there would be a whole um, slew of them, um, whose job was nothing but negotiating, interacting with the strangers. Like there, so the caravaneers' um, task would be basically security out in the wild. So there were soldiers. A lot of them were ex-soldiers. There were guards, um, but they were also like pe people would be screaming. I mean, when you're a moving city, like um, you get a billion accusations of he stole my stuff or he's been you know uh, whatever he gave right. me a bad deal. So they were the judge um, for any of those um, kind of uh, scenarios. Um, anytime a caravan met another caravan is an opportunity for a riot, right? It's mm. like a horrifying scenario yeah. in, in the middle of nowhere. So they negotiate all that. Who's Because because what are you negotiating? Well, there's one well and there's two groups of 150 people. Wow. Go. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So, so these are the kinds of things. And then every 10 miles or so, there, uh, well, in some cases, it's much longer distances. There was a caravanserai. A caravanserai is basically like a modern day gas station, right? It's a it's a fort. So if there is any kind of breakout of of like bandit bandit raiders that want to come and get you, you're booking it as fast as you can into the walls of the caravanserai. They were they were fortressed. But they also were just, they had the water, they had the basic provisions, they were basically a place to do mini trading um, and to just rest up. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that we don't have. We don't, you know, we have sometimes we have, we have little way stations and stuff you'll you'll see um, yeah. when you're doing a tour of the Wild West or anything like that in the, in the West, Southwest America. Um, but it's not as as sort of formalized, you know what I mean? 
Um, but all this stuff you could see was beginning to form with the Oregon Trail too. Like no one was going out in the Oregon Trail with like a s single dad no. taking his kids. Like that would be a bad scenario. You'd yes. want to get in with a wagon train as yes. fast as you can. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was a long answer, but in some ways it's, it's another way of thinking about you travel these big old distances right. and worry about everything from water to security. Um, you know, you very quickly, you've got to sort of start allocating tasks. Well, and I think it's, it's even interesting too, thinking about the most, I mean, we, we talk so often because, because this is all we can do uh, sort of the like 50,000 foot view of, of right. the time period and the people, but thinking about, why do why have I as an individual ever decided to move and what were the motivations behind it? And did I move as a single person or with a group or, you know, like what dynamic and then extrapolate that to why right. would what would motivate um, this particular uh, families and groups of people to to move? I think maybe sometimes it was. Um, well, probably in a lot of times it was um, situ situation. Well, I mean, sorry, that was a simplistic way. We're always moving as a result of situations, whether we create them or because they're created for us. But what I meant to say was I, th I wonder how many of it was, yes, I'm excited for a new adventure versus um, we have to, the, the group is going and we right. do not wish to be left behind. We must therefore move with the group. That's what I'm interested and curious about. Um, the more individual um, uh, family dynamics within the larger caravan. Um, were there any, uh, I'm just curious during your research, did you find any, any stories that were preserved or passed on maybe from that sort of more individualistic perspective? You know, I, it's funny. Um, yeah. I think one of the, the, the way we are a little bit more lopsided in the modern era is there wasn't nearly as much like optional moving, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of times people will move and the option being sometimes even like employment, sure. you're choosing to take that job. Um, that, that wasn't nearly as common um, in, in my reading anyway. And it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty um, easy answer. Cause frankly, um, Frankly, it was it was it was very very suboptimal to move away from the people you knew. Hmm. Um, you would have to be an extreme outsider. You would have to have a say, or um, and and the kind of movement that there was um, was as you said with you know the the non voluntary kind <laughs> right. of hey this is happening. You know, one of my favorite move stories is kind of referred to in the book, um, and it's about how you know the Silk Road is named after, of course, one of its most valuable commodities, silk. And at that time, Xi'an, um, which is Eastern China, had a, a monopoly on silk. No one knew how it was made. Um, some people thought, um, and there were all kinds of like myths about how how silk has has come to be. Um, you know, people thought it was um, people thought it was a it was a plant. Some people thought it was um, uh, you know it, some kind of spun animal protein. It was it was it was like. And then, then there was like magical, you know, versions, but it's, it's beautiful. It's yeah. strong. It's soft. It's delicate. It's incredible. Silk yeah. is just this like super valuable thing. Um, and, and the emperor of China is absolutely adamant that he's going to keep the information to himself. Cause of course it's a gigantic economic powerhouse. Right. So, um, so anyway, a magistrate in this city um, decides, uh, unrelated to this problem, uh, to marry off his daughter to a warlord in like the Kashgar area. She is like 
this sophisticated young woman. She loves silk making more than anything else. Of course, silk make silk is made with worms in the mulberry tree um, and silkworms, of course. And so um, uh, she loves doing that. That's her biggest hobby. And she's furious that her dad has married her off to this like, you know, horse lord. Right. Uh, who it's all you know, it's it's, it's nutty. And so she she sort of exacts her revenge. Um, she wears a giant headdress um, as she leaves the city, and in her headdress she smuggles tons of silkworms. Mm -hmm. And and so when she gets to Kashgar as a present to her new husband, she says, um, "You know, here is the secret to making silk." Um, all of a sudden, almost overnight, um, as a new silk economy opens up, the Persian uh, like. Um, uh, uh, leaders are desperate to get this information. They are sending people. Um, it, it's all of a sudden out in the open. And it's all because of this one young woman being forced to move uh, from one city to another, right? Um, anyway, so the, 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 I guess the answer to your question in some ways is like, as with her, nobody, nobody you don't really want to, even the stories we get of like, a, you know, there, there, of course there were people who were, um, you know, uh, uh, desirous to have like the adventure, the idea of like going to the, you know, over the horizon, any of those right. things, that's a deeply human thing. And, you know, those, but those people are exceptional. Those people, you know, um, were, um, were the, were the sorts of people who would, who would probably sign up for that kind of job of, yeah. you know, being a merchant. Um, yeah. but it, it was not an easy life. Nobody, everybody was trying to survive and your best chances of surviving are with your family um, most of the time you know yeah no i think that i i could keep this conversation going for hours and hours because i i truly find this fascinating but i want to uh wrap wrap start to wrap us up and so i'll ask yeah. them maybe two um more straightforward questions so one i want to ask you i'll start here and say what is um well, actually, let me ask you in a different way. What do you hope people get out of your book after having read it? Well, so, so the book is this kind of like, you know, chase sequence, right? It's across the Silk Road. They're going across the Taklamakan Desert. It's Samir um, being chased by all these murderers. And each one is a different kind of like set piece almost. Like the, the Viking berserker finds them in the spice bazaar of a city and it turns into just this gigantic riot of clouds of spices in the air. You know, the um the Mongolian gunner is like literally a sniper sequence out of, you know, out of a night World War II film. I, I mean the my favorite sequence is with the poisoner, this sort of ch old Chinese chemist who is playing a game of chess with our main with Samir. Um it's very much like some of my favorites, you know, Princess Bride, right? Yeah. Is the poison in my cup or in your cup? <laughs> so it's it's joyful. I want I I like writing joyful stories that are that are kind of they are stories. I don't I, you know. Sometimes I try to do be you know do the literary thing of deconstructing a form or a genre, and sometimes you know I, I think a good writer can do two things. They can they can create revolutions or they can create evolutions. Mm. Um, a revolution is, of course, me trying to like break a genre, break it, you know, subvert your expectations and change, basically try to like innovate, right? right. Innovating is something I, and that's something I try to do with certain books. And then sometimes you just want to do an evolution, like the perfect telling of a fairy tale, the perfect, like just that sort of the polish that we can bring to, to the craft. And this was very much me trying to do a middle grade adventure story that is going to give you like it. 
give you what a story should be promising, right? I want you to laugh. I want you to have excitement. I don't, I do you, I do not want you to know what's about to happen at the end. I defy you to figure it out. I, I want you, and then I want you to cry, right? I want you to think about the plight of this kid who is a three times orphan, who is about to be stoned to death for no other reason than asking a question that demanded the monks of his monastery to think a little bit more broadly. They they are a dualist religion. They only believe in light and darkness, good and evil, life and death. And he he sees something. He sees these two birds. I won't go into it, but he sees these two birds and um, who are in love and tragically sort of pass away. One gets sick. The other dies of sadness. And he says that that second bird, when he died of sadness, if we only believe in life and death, like what did he lose? What did he lose that that yep. is at least as powerful as life and death? Well, I mean, all, all profound answers are always going to be simple answers. Of course, the answer is love. Of course, the answer is love is the third most thing. Love is the 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 you know the um, the thing uh, at, at least as powerful as life and death. And so, he, when he's asking this question, he's also asking, "Why is it there's no one in my life who loves me that much? Like, why is it there's you know as a as this orphan child um, that I've been stuck with this unserious man?" And why is it? Um, and why is it that despite the fact that I hate his guts and that I think he's a liar and I think he's a simpleton and I think he's a bad person, why is it that everyone around him? Why is it that he has the truest sense of family than anyone else? And why is it he keeps trying so hard to sacrifice for me? And and in some ways, um, I guess the story of this, you know, is a two, is a two part phrase that comes up as two chapter titles, which is the expensive nature of love, which is to say. How, how expensive it is and how costly it is for us to decide to love anybody and the expansive nature of love, um, which is um, just how much more it gives us than any cost we could possibly imagine, right? Yeah. Um, so in some ways, it's about that. It's about this sort of very odd little family that forms between these two, um, you know, despite the fact that, of course, it has an ending where he, he sort of tells you, I ki- you know, he, he killed him. And, and so... Um, so I want, you know, I, I suppose I want them to to imagine um, monkeys' plight in this yeah. little, you know, orphans in the 11th century don't get a lot of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. Well, let me let me uh, in that there, and I I will ask you. Well, I'll I was going to ask you where can folks purchase it, but we've got the ability. I would say if you're listening to it right now, I've got the link in the show notes uh, to purchase it, so you can just scroll down and click on it, um, and and go from there. But this is absolutely fascinating. I there's so many incredible things about your background too, um, and coming to writing that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But I would say. Um, uh, let's just do this. Let's talk about, um, I'll say, I'll do a quick plug for uh, Everything Sad is Untrue, a true story um, to learn a bit more about your life and your background um, coming in. Is there anything you would want to say in maybe like a few moments about about that particular book as well? Sure. Well, so that one was me trying to innovate a little bit. It's it's less about giving it something to you straight and more about this. Um, it's an autobiographical story about me coming to the United States with my family. We were refugees. Um, we had uh, from Iran. And so it starts with a little boy and he's um, standing in front of his class trying to explain what he did last summer, which is come to America as refugees because his mother had a fatwa on his head because she'd helped start the underground church. And the story is getting bigger and bigger and he's not a very good narrator. So he's sort of um, the unwieldy nature of it is taking him through Persian mythology and four, four generations of family and 
and none of the kids in the classroom believe him at all. And so he's uh, he's a little floundering a little bit as a storyteller until he finds out that his dad, this man who he's he's sort of described as larger than life, um, a man of poetry and mystery, uh, he's going to come visit his school in Edmond, Oklahoma. And and this is the climax, right? Is this man going to be some great hero or just you know some schlubby old dad? Like um, this is this is the question at the heart of that story as well. So um, yeah, it's kind of it's an autobiographical memoir. It's about it's about coming to the United States, and um, that's yeah, that was the last that was the previous book. Yeah, I love it. Well, folks can uh, go ahead and I would say purchase all the great books of Daniel Nieri um, via the links we've got below. So all right, well this, now we're going to transition. To a segment I like to call Things to Check Out, uh, which is a segment where I provide a recommendation of something to read, watch, and or listen to, and I invite my guests to do the same. Uh, I will go first, um, and uh, I will say beyond, after you've already purchased the many assassinations of Samir, the seller of dreams, and everything sad is untrue, a true story, that's where you should start. Um, you can pause. Uh, there's a uh, giant pause button uh, on your podcast player. You can press it. You can purchase. You can resume. Um, once you've done that, some other recommendations I have for you. Um, so books, I've actually got, I've got two, uh, I was thinking of two, a uh, one book recommendation. And as we were talking, I thought of another one. So I'll just go ahead and do this. Um, so I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia, um, as, as, as one does from time to time. And the book that I kept thinking the entire time I was reading this book was of the horse and his boy. Yes. I mean, the entire time. It is a story about a boy and his horse yeah. who go on incredible adventures, right? And it's just, if you have, I, I would say. It's my favorite of his by far. It's incredible. And if you've not read it because you're used to reading language in the wardrobe or Prince Caspian, maybe Magician's Nephew, maybe you skip ahead to the last battle, whatever, you're missing out on an incredible book. And no, I would say. You know, the Horson's Boy is not centered around any of the Pevensey children. It does have them in there, um, but it's not centered around them. It is centered around, I had to get his name right. Was it Sasha? Uh, no, Shasta. Shasta, sorry. Shasta, yeah. uh, who lives in Kellerman and finds a horse and is, goes on adventures. I won't give any more away because really folks need to go read it. But that's what I was thinking of the entire time. And what I loved about the Horson's Boy um, is it was a unique adventure experience that felt familiar and interestingly different, differently yeah. interesting um, than what I was used to reading. And and I think there's a lot that people will love in The Seller of Dreams that you will love in The Horse and His Boy. So those are companion pieces. Um, the other book that I thought of, as you were talking about when we were t having the discussion around people going back in time and, and getting swindled in like 12 minutes or probably less, um, I was thinking of Timeline. So I'm a big Michael Crichton fan. Um, That's a great movie. Yeah, it is. Did you watch the book? Or you, you read the book? Yeah, That's yeah. The... So I, I saw the movie when it came out yeah. with uh, Paul Walker back in 2003. Yeah. Um, and uh, the book, the book, as as most books do, right, have incredibly more details. Um, and there's there's a couple of scenes, people are talking about going back in time and like, oh, wouldn't this be great? Wouldn't this be incredible? And then right off the bat, they go back in time. And this is a, a little bit of a spoiler, but it's early in the book. So it's okay. Um, goes back in time and somebody immediately gets killed immediately yep. because they're just they just sort of appear they're in the way they're not moving and people are like oh you're a danger get rid of you and then move on and people are just like horrified and they're like oh this is not what i thought it would be uh yeah. i think it's 15th century france i might be incorrect but that might be right yeah. so anyways those are two books to check out um 
uh, show. So I know I'm a little behind on this, but when we're talking about taking a journey and maybe um, um, uh, it shouldn't be just one dad, maybe taking a journey, but I just started The Last of Us on HBO. So I've been reading that and so, or reading it, I've been watching it and yeah. uh, I can't, I can't stop watching it. So I'm excited. That's a recommendation again of somebody taking a journey um, and, and learning something new uh, along the way is a very simplistic way to say it. Um, and then podcast, I am, this is not uh, tied to the theme, but it was tied to soccer. So I'll do a, a quick plug. So I do, um, if, if you enjoy sports and you enjoy sports history, I do a show called uh, 25 or 25, the story of the Miami fusion from those who lived it. Um, speaking of long titles, I also obviously <laughs> like a good long title. Um, and I would say if you're already subscribed to this podcast, uh, it's already on your feed. So we have a separate feed and channel for uh, 25 or 25, but then we also put the episodes out on this feed. So you don't even have to subscribe to a new podcast. Um, I enjoy sports stories, specifically soccer stories. And it's a story about a team that was in major league soccer from 1998 through 2001 and then folded right when the league was about to fold. And then now the league is 29 teams strong has a huge deal with Apple larger than life in a lot of ways. And this is a story about one of the teams that the league had to cut in order to survive. So it's very interesting, fascinating. They were the best team in the league when they got cut as well. So it's it's very fascinating. So those are the recommendations. Daniel, what is something uh, folks can read, watch, and or listen to? Oh, man. Um, okay, so read. I've been reading, rereading, because I just I adore this book. It just came out um, called Impossible Histories by Hal Johnson. And it's him going through the history of the world Classic sort of move, right, is, a, is a, this question of um, what are some moments in history where everything could have gone the other way, history mm. would have changed. Now, the obvious ones are like, you know, if Hitler wins the war, or the Civil war, all those kinds of things. But he takes it in such different places. Like one was, what if the romantics like Coleridge and um, Wordsworth, what if they never invented the concept of cool? Would we have the flower children of the 1970s? Like what if, um, you know, Hannibal goes and sacks Rome? Um, what happens if Carthage, the seat of like the empire of Rome is in North Africa? Um, he's a really funny writer. I adore him. I was just reading his section on Richard the Lionheart. Um, he makes it so fun. Um, and then he gives you like his guess on what history would each chapter. It's like, what if this happens? And then he gives you the sort of alt history version. Um, and it's always just really fun and hilarious. He's got a great sense of humor. So Hal Johnson, Impossible Histories. I just love if you're a history nerd like me. Um, it reminds me of actually Dan Carlin's kind of stuff, which is oh, a okay. podcast, I suppose yeah, I would, yeah, yeah. but that's an obvious. Now I think for, um, for watching, I'm gonna go back to history again. I'm, I love it, man. If you want cozy, if you were, this was my, um, you know, the last three years, you know, you want to watch something that has zero stress whatsoever. Sometimes, um, the BBC has a whole series of shows called like Victorian farm, Edwardian farm. Um, there was a wartime farm for World War II, but Edwardian and Victorian farm were my two favorite. And they basically go on a farm in England, these three um, historians, and and they try for a year to live as they did. So they're like trying to oh. plow the field and trying to make like tallow candles and all kinds of things. And it's just a show about craft and the history. Um, it's wonderfully made, really, uh, really like comfort watching kind of thing um highly recommend them and again good good history fix there um i think that would probably be you know if i'm staying in theme that's probably the thing. timeline the movie i know it's not as good as the book 
But one of those easy to watch movies, man. Yes. <laughs> I, it, you know, it's so funny when I was thinking, I was having this conversation um, with my mother-in-law because she actually gave, she had the book. And so she, she gave it to me because I hadn't read the book, but she knew I loved Michael Crichton. And so we were having a conversation and I said, isn't it so interesting when you think about when some of these properties are made and they reflect yeah. the style of the time, right? Like Timeline Main 2003, very reflective of action movies of the early 2000s, like yeah. 100%. Right. If you take that story and drop it in like the era of of, you know, limited series on TV, very oh, sure. different approach. You, we talked about The Last of Us. You drop it in as HBO show, nine, ten yeah. episodes. You're going to get a radically different feel than Paul Walker storming through the French countryside. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like just yeah, very, sure. very different. I love it, though. I love it. But let me let me ask you a real quick question. Uh, any author you can think of who's been better treated by Hollywood than Michael Crichton, uh, meaning. Mm. I, I think he's had so many good, uh, so many good hits, and yeah. all kind of respectful of the books and uh, a lot of them. I don't know. Jane Austen has been treated very well as well. Yeah. She's got some movies that that have worked. I can't think of an author who has has uh, been in uh, better adapted than Michael Crichton. I would say, yeah, I would say from a volume perspective, definitely Stephen King has been adapted a ton obviously but i would say from <laughs> there's some hits and misses there <laughs> I, but that to your point right i would say sheer volume is one thing sure, sure. but quality of adapt adaptations uh consistently yeah. i would say i would say michael michael Crichton for sure and i just i appreciate um the the question that he always asks sort of at the core of a lot of these instances which comes down to um just because we can do something should we do something and i think in 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 modern day times, it resonates a lot more. But I would say um, yeah. there's so many lessons that we can take from history. You're talking about history. We're talking about the history of the Silk Road. And we're thinking about how um, in this story, we're reflecting back on historical elements and how society's moving and society's sort of setting up shop and paving the way in a lot of respects for where we are today. It's a good opportunity to revisit that mindset and think about what were the lessons that uh, that particular generation of humans learned and passed on? And what can we learn from them to, to not repeat uh, the cycle, but create a new cycle? And, and I love it. Thank you so much for the book. If people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm easy to find. Uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all Daniel Nayeri. Uh, and my my information is online. My email's there. Like I don't, you know, I'm not um, I'm not too hidden. So uh, hit me up. Very nice. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I hope to have you back on the show again because this is incredible. And I've got I, a whole other page of notes I didn't even get to. So I'll have to. I mean, for real, I've got like I mean, I just right. I mean, right here, I'm like, hold. Well, it's blurry because I got blur background on, but nobody could see that because um, it's an audio only show. But anyways, it is what it is. So Daniel, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. And listeners, you've been detoxing with detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. 
Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.